I was encouraged when I was in preaching school and continued to encourage young preachers as I had an opportunity when I was a teacher at a preaching school that come time to preach, get up and preach. Don't tell jokes, don't make offhanded comments, don't make a bunch of announcements. You have been preparing uh, for the time to preach and everybody in the audience has a pot roast that is burning. So they're ready for you to get going, but it would be wrong for me not to say this morning uh, how blessed Tammy and I are to be part of the Memorial Church. It was a year ago last week that we moved all of our belongings from Oklahoma City with the intent of me beginning to work alongside of the congregation here, and I cannot tell you how wonderful it has been. We have a tremendous staff to learn from men like David and the others to uh, work alongside of a group of shepherds that I don't mean this just for them to feel good, are the finest bunch of shepherds that I have ever met. To have the opportunity to, uh, to learn from men like Wyatt Robertson, who read for us in our first service, and Kirk Castleman, who uh, shared with us those great thoughts about the Lord's Supper. And Kirk, I don't care what you say in the words that were given to the Apostle Paul, we will hear you again on this matter. So, with that being said, uh, I want us to consider a little bit about what our theme is for this particular a series we have been talking about walking alongside of Jesus and most specifically some of the words that he shared while he was in the flesh on this earth in the form of parables that idea of a story alongside of a more heavenly meaning and so we're going to continue that theme today and we're going to do so by considering a couple of brothers that are more alike than they would like to admit, or at least one of them. But I hope in there that it won't simply be an academic exercise to look at brothers, but it will be a reflection on our own relationship with our brothers in the flesh, or our family in general, or perhaps even our spiritual family that we call the church. There's lots of famous brothers in history. There's the notorious, uh, well, do you know who this is? This happens to be Billy Carter, the, president, the former president, Bill, Jimmy Carter's brother, notorious in many respects, the namesake of Billy Beer, and that probably says it all right there. Uh, do you know this guy? Looks a little bit more like his brother, maybe, once you find out. He's an actor. He is a musician. He is Frank Stallone. He is the brother of uh, Sylvester Stallone. In fact, if you want to see him perform... He sings by a burning trash can in Rocky II. You can go back and see him in that. How about this guy? He's a little notorious. I know what you're thinking. He looks just like the father-in-law of Justin Bieber. Well, you're right, he is, but he also is the brother Stephen to Alec Baldwin, both actors in their own right. How about this guy? Perhaps more notorious than even his famous brother. This is Roger Clinton, who uh, spent more time investigating the American penal institutions from the inside than anyone ever did from the outside. He had a little bit of a problem with that, but he was the brother to the former president. Here's going to be a little tougher one, but an important one. Do you know this guy? I'll give you a couple of hints. Very, probably one of the most famous of all of those characters that we have up there. 
You don't know? Huh, that's interesting. I thought everybody would know this guy. <laughs> that's my brother, Michael, who lives in Denver, Colorado, where he is an art director for the Denver Seminary and is married and has some kids. And if you ask him, he doesn't know about any of that. Only thing he knows about is his grandkids, especially Graham, who is his favorite, even if he doesn't say it. My brother and I are very similar in some ways, at times a little bit in our appearance. This is an older picture of him and a much older picture of me as well. We are different in some ways. My brother is left-handed and I am right-handed. He is more inclined to be um, reflective and artistic, and believe it or not, I have a tendency to be more vocal and impulsive. We shared a bedroom most of our time growing up, at time even a bed, and we had some of the same interests and some of the things that we did not, but I will just tell you right now, this was our biggest struggle. He wouldn't keep from touching my stuff. I was very organized. Some would say I was obsessive compulsive. I just like to say I was very organized, and he would touch my stuff and put things out of order, and I didn't like it. I guess if I had to summarize our relationship, I would with the last thing my brother told me here a few months ago when I visited in Denver. I said, I'll see you soon. And he goes, well, don't expect me coming to Houston to visit you. To which I responded, I love you too, brother. I'll see you soon. What is it about brothers, right? Today we're going to talk about a couple of brothers, one more famous, but maybe when it's all said and done, the other more infamous. It is a story that comes from Luke chapter 15. You know it, and I've put it in quotations here, as the story of the so-called prodigal son. It is one of the most familiar of all of the parables. It has been preached at from every single angle there is. It has been used to preach about the love and the patience of God. It has been used to talk about the impulsive recklessness of man. It has been talked about family. It is used to talk about unfaithfulness. It's been talked about sin and wanton living. We have preached about it from the standpoint of finding ourselves in sin and repenting of that. Uh, we have looked at it from, uh, I guess, each of us have occupied one of those characters at some time. Maybe the father who loves his son but waits for his return. Or, or the son, I would guess we probably more often than not associated with that son who runs off and finds himself in dire straits. And maybe on occasion we find ourselves in the shoes of the older brother. But it is important that we understand what this is really about because it is not the story of a prodigal son. And I know that most of the attention of the parable is given on this son that goes away, but in fact, it is something much bigger. It is part of actually a trilogy in which Jesus is making a point through or with a thread through a number of stories. Let me just real quick uh, give you a, a scenario or kind of give you a, a synopsis of this particular parable, either for your remembrance or maybe for some of you the first time you've ever really looked at it. But for the sake of time, let me just kind of abbreviate for you. Jesus tells the story, tells the story of two sons, one older, one younger. The younger son comes to his father and makes an unbelievable request. 
He requests of his father that his father give him the inheritance that he is due. An unusual request because the inheritance would usually only been bestowed once the father had died. And so the son basically says, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Could I get my money now? And he takes that money and off he goes. And though the text does not go into great detail, but it speaks to the idea that he spends it on wanton living. In fact, the idea of being a prodigal does not mean a runaway son. It means one who spends frivolously. And so we have this son who goes off, and I can only imagine that he's eating at the nicest of restaurants, that he's spending his money on the fanciest of things. You know that he's got all the friends in the world, and he's buying the drinks. I mean, he's having a grand old time. And then he looks one day into his wallet, and things are getting a little thin. And to complicate that, there is a famine over the region in which he lives. In other words, it requires additional resources to be able to even survive, and he doesn't have them anymore. And so he does what's almost unthinkable for a young Jewish man he has to, who has been of this wealth, and that is he's going to have to go to work. But not just any job, he's going to work amongst the pigs, the swine. And if you remember, for the Jews, the swine was as unclean of a thing as it gets, and now he finds them, and I tend to think that it sounds as if he's not just working amongst them, he's living amongst them. He's sleeping with them, and he's eating with them. It says that he longed just for the pods, the carob pods that the pigs were eating. I think what it means is that when the pigs were through eating, all that was left was what the pigs wouldn't eat. And having spent some time with my uncle who used to raid pigs, they'll eat just about anything, including a billy goat, okay? That's how much they'll eat. But the things that they left behind is what he's nourishing himself on. Not only does he find himself at the bottom of the trough, he finds himself at the bottom of the barrel. And he says, it shouldn't be this way. He longs for the way that it was before, but he knows that's outside of his reach. He knows that his actions have distanced himself, not only in geography, but relationship from his father. And he doesn't quite know what to do. And then he conceives of a plan. He says, I know that the slaves, the lowest of slaves in my father's house, are the ones that live much better than I'm living now. Perhaps, just perhaps, I can make an overture to my father. I can make a request that he makes me nothing more than the lowest of slaves. Never a hope of returning back to sonship and unto his complete care. But if I could just be the lowest of slaves, at least I would have a place to lay my head. I would have food in my belly. And that would be uh, rich compared to where I am now. And any godly Christian counselor would show you the model of how he not only conceived of the thing but he, and planned of a thing, but he worked that plan, he took an initiative, he took an action, and he picked himself up and he headed with that plan towards his father's house. But before he got there, his father sees him afar off and his father races out, wraps his arm around him and rejoices, weeping because his son who has been away is now returned, as he would later say, the one who was lost has been found. He is so exuberant about this, he brings his son to the house, he instructs the servants to prepare a gigantic celebration, a feast that would celebrate the one who was coming back home. 
And that is the beautiful picture of the prodigal son. However, as I said, this is not the story of the prodigal son, but in fact, this is the story of a brother who wasn't quite so excited. Why is it that our brothers, our sisters, our family, our church family are such a bother? It might be that in the days of Jesus, it was, uh, it was okay for people to feel a little upset that Jesus was eating amongst the sinners and the tax gatherers. They were a sordid group. It's why Jesus gives this trilogy of uh, parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and this, the lost son, so he could under, get them to understand, because I think there's also a little of an indication there maybe about the idea of Jesus not only accepted sinners, but even worse, he was accepting Gentiles, and that was a definite no-no, and they were bothered by that. Here's the thing is, it may seem reasonable for them, but what about for this son, who found receiving back his brother such a bother. Why is it that for you and I, that sometimes those who are the closest to us are the ones that we have the hardest time in forgiving, in reuniting with, in mending fences if they're necessary, in welcoming back to the family or to the fold of God? Maybe it's because, like it is at my house, when my kids are somewhat uh, not all that I want them to be, I find that frustrating. Not just because of their behavior, but because I realize that they learn those characteristics from me. And sometimes it is we're unwilling to forgive because we know that we're guilty of the same things that they are, and if we were to somehow recognize them being a far-off then we would have to recognize we were afar off and since they've come back and we haven't, at least everybody doesn't know it, we don't like that. I might add that when my children act well, I feel good about that because I know that they're their mother's children and that's paying off dividends. But sometimes it is that those individuals maybe have wronged us personally. They have mistreated us. There was a, an argument. There was a disagreement. There was some something that caused a division. And maybe it's been days, weeks, months, even years. And we both dig our heels in and we're not about to compromise. It would seem as if we would celebrate greatly those who came back that were already our own family. As resistive as we might be to those who are the wicked and to accepting them in, we would be, I would think we would be overjoyed to find a brother or a sister, a family member who was returned back. I'd like to make four observations very quickly for you from the story in Luke chapter 15 from this parable that, as I said, is not about a prodigal son but it is about the unforgiving or the unwelcoming brother. And it is the shoes, or if you will, the sandals that Jesus is wanting us to put on our own feet as we consider welcoming back others. The first observation is this, and that is we are less likely to accept others when we have a prideful view of ourselves. 
When we set ourselves as the standard, when we think we are the way things should be, when, if you will, we always think about how this affected me or how this compares to me, how mis ever misguided it is, because I remind you that pride is an empty boast. That pride is thinking more of oneself than they really are. It's not about an honest assessment of our behavior, our characteristics, our thoughts, beliefs, our actions. But what it is, is, it is a, it's a living through a rose-colored view of ourselves. I kind of liken it to going in the morning when I look in the mirror and I don't have my glasses on. I get ready for the day and I said, I look pretty good. I can't make much detail out. Then eventually I put my glasses on and I'm sure not to look in the mirror again. And I leave the day when people say, is that the way you intended to look? I said, I think I look good. In fact, I think I look really good. And that may be the case for some of us. Listen to what it is that the older brother says in regards to his behavior. He says, look, almost, I appreciate the way that ESV declares it, almost with a disrespect for his father, certainly with frustration. He says, look, old man. He says, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Did you see what he said? He said, I have been here like a slave. I have been shackled. I would have gone if I could, but I couldn't. I was so bound to you. I had no choice. These are all the descriptions of a slave. I had no choices no of my own. I had nothing but what you slung at me, he says, and I have never, ever, ever, ever disobeyed you. I'm not so sure that that's an honest assessment. And certainly, if that was, that would make everyone else look pretty insignificant. In fact, it's my second observation from this text. And that is that we are less likely to accept others when we have a low view of others. When people are, if you will, an inconvenience to us. When we are bothered about the traffic on I-10 out here, it's like one guy said about driving. He said it is most perplexing. Because driving is where everybody in front of you that's driving faster is an idiot because they drive too slow. And everybody behind you who is driving slower than you is a maniac for wanting to drive so fast. We're bothered about when they are inconveniencing us, when this affects ours, because they are nothing more than players or pawns in our life. When my son Kyle, my second oldest, who loves sports, would gather all the guys from our block to play football, this is what it looked like. Kyle would say to one of them, he goes, you will play the center and you will snap me the ball. He would look to another, he says, you'll play the halfback, and when I get the ball, I'm going to fake handing it off to you, and then you'll block for me. And then he told the guys, he, one of them, he said, you'll go down, and I'm going to throw you a pass. And you're going to block for me, and you're on the defense. Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to try to grab me, but I'm going to get out of the way. And then after he catches the pass, I'm going to run down there. And in glorious fashion, you know, he'll pitch it back to me and I'll get the ball again. And you're going to grab me by the leg and I'm going to drag you over the end zone and score a touchdown. And great is me. 
that's how, and they all lined up like a bunch of goofballs. Okay, I'll try. They were terrible football players, but Kyle had a record year that year, over 1,000 touchdowns. But isn't that how we live our life? Everybody else is an insignificant to us. So it's not just the prideful view that we have of ourselves, but it's the lowly view. Listen to how the older brother describes his brother in the flesh. He says, but when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him a brother. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, when this son of yours who has squandered your property, even though it wasn't the father's property, he had given the property over to the son to use as he sees fit. You have squandered your property with prostitutes come home. You kill the fatted calf for him. Do you really think he's worth it? That brings us to our third observation. And that is we are less likely to accept others when we don't understand God's love. God's love is the basis on which every individual is valued. God's love for them is the price that he was willing to pay for them, namely his son Jesus. And if one is valued by the price that is willing to be paid for them, that makes everyone valuable. There are no lessers. But I think, and it's a harder pill to swallow, that we recognize our value in light of the cross. And as Kirk pointed out so well, the sacrifice that was offered for us, when we know how despicable, even if we don't admit it at parties, we really are. And when we see the love of God, whether we see it through the love of that father or a shepherd that searches for a sheep or a woman that searches for a coin or for a Christ that says, I love you this much, it begins to change how we look at ourselves and how we look at others. Fourth observation as we're almost out of time. Uh, I guess we should look very quickly at what the father says. I apologize. I'm kind of moving through the texture quick. He says, that is the father, we had to celebrate and be glad. It was almost a moral obligation. This brother of yours, listen to the extreme terminology. He said, he was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is what the entirety of the work of God from Genesis chapter 3 until his final return is all about. This is why he did and does and why we do what we do. Fourth observation. We are less likely to accept others when we care more about what belongs to us than who we belong to. You know, it's interesting, that's the very thing that sent the younger of the two brothers off in the first place. Give me what's deserving of me. And then he came to realize that it didn't matter what he had, it mattered who he belonged to. And here was a son, now an older brother, who had a relationship with his father and forgot who it is that he belonged to and instead was going to be satisfied with the superficial, what belongs to me. It is why Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23 are important for us. Jesus speaking to 
the Pharisees that I believe were the objects of the three parables that we've mentioned this morning. He talks about them living and being so prideful of themselves and looking down at the Gentiles and those sinners and those tax collectors. And he said, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Echoing his words that the entirety of the law hangs on these two equally valuable commandments, to love God and to love others. And when we fail to love others, we are not loving God, no matter how much of a in the house we think we are. Some of you are thinking right now, well, you know what? I'd write that down, but you didn't give us a fill in the blanks today, and we're not very happy about it. Well, then come back tonight when we talk about unwarranted anger, and we'll deal with your problem there. <laughs> but I will give you a fill in the blank. I have written it or had it put at the bottom of the, of the bulletin for you or the worship sheet, and that is my challenge for you today. Today, you may have someone in your life that you have been at odds with. In fact, it may be someone in this very room who you have a problem with. Maybe it's something that they did directly to you. Maybe it's something they did that did not directly uh, affect you, but as such it reflected uh, affected your relationship and you are not what you once were. Even if that one individual has made things right or is tempting to make things right and you're deciding that you're going to live as if they still are squandering their wealth. I want to encourage you today to take the step towards making that right. Don't wait for them to come to you. Be like that father and race to them. Embrace them and say, you once were lost, but now you're found. You were a lot dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but you are now found. I want to celebrate in that. Maybe it's not somebody here, but it's somebody beyond these walls. It's a friend. It's a brother, a sister, a family member who you have been at odds with for some time. That's not how those who love God and who have been loved by God behave. And today is the day for you to take the choice to be proactive and to do something about that. Or maybe it is that today you said, I don't have any brothers or sisters here because I'm not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as such, not a brother or sister in the faith. And you're ready to make a decision because it is for that purpose that we exist. We worship God, and that's appropriate. We learn about God. We give to his work. But the reason that we exist in this world is we have been alongside of Jesus waiting for you. And today's the day for him to adopt you and to make you the firstborn in his family, deserving of his full inheritance. Or maybe it is that you need the help of this body of brothers and sisters. I'd like to request their prayers. We'd be glad to help you with that. If there's any way that in a public response we can serve you, won't you let us know? You'll not be embarrassed, I promise you. We'll help in any way that we can. Let's encourage one another as we reflect on these things. We sing as Tucker leads us. <laughs>